Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with behavior. Join us each week as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. Today's episode includes myself, Ursa Acri, co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, who I'll let introduce themselves. Hey guys, it's Marissa Martino from Paws and Reward in Boulder, Colorado. And I'm Kayla Fratt um, of Journey Dog Training in Missoula, Montana. Today we're going to be discussing a very complex and sometimes even controversial topic, is aggression ever fixed? This is a matter of extensive debate in the dog training world and a question that really looms large in the mind of any pet parent who struggles with a dog that engages in aggressive behavior. When is your training finished? Is it ever finished? How do we determine if aggressive behavior is no longer a concern? Um, We're gonna start off by briefly discussing aggression, what it is and what it means so that we can standardize these terms so we're all talking about the same thing. So generally speaking, trainers use the word aggression as shorthand to mean aggressive behavior. So aggression isn't a personality trait. It's a behavior that can be displayed by any animal in response to a threat. Aggressive behavior is, for most animals, a last-ditch effort to resolve a conflict or neutralize a perceived threat. And it's really important to note that I said the word perceived. It doesn't really matter if we don't think it's a threat the animal does. So therefore they are going to react in that fashion. Yeah. And it's also really important to note that aggression is a totally normal and adaptive behavior. So all animals, including humans, um, are capable of displaying aggression when and if we feel threatened. So there are some relatively rare cases in which the aggressive behavior is more abnormal or idiosyncratic, usually with more of a physiological, physical underlying to that problem. But in the vast majority of cases, Aggression is a normal behavioral response. Um, It can be heightened or, you know, what we would consider over the top in response to a a trigger. Um, But it's a normal, normal part of the behavioral repertoire of any animal. And one thing I want to add in is kind of what aggression looks like. Um, Because, you know, again, I could say it and Kayla, you could say it and Marissa, you could say it and we might all be talking about different things. So, you Mm -hmm. know, as we've all got shelter background, we've all been drilled with um, describe, don't diagnose, right? (laughs) So what I am usually talking about when I say aggressive behavior is, um, you know, growling, snapping, tooth display, like that's not necessarily an order of the progression of it, but, um, you know, tense body language, whale eye, tooth display, um, growling, snapping, biting. Um, and I think that's what most owners are, are also referring to when they say aggression. Would you guys agree? Yeah. I just want to put a caveat there because some of the behavior, like I have seen dogs, get ready to, um, offer a play bow. And they're also exhibiting what would be considered whale eye at the same time. So they're looking in one direction and yet you can see the whites of their eyes as they're getting ready to deepen into a play bow. We also see growling during play. So I think we're not talking about when these behaviors are coming up in a positive context or the rest of the body is exhibiting loose, soft postures. We're talking about when an animal like uh, Ursa mentioned is tense, stiff, um, you know, mouth is closed and then is exhibiting in a variety of these uh, threat displays to let the trigger know to create space for that animal. So 
it's really important to look at the whole animal and all of the body parts all of the body parts and all and and the posture to make sure that we're all talking about the same thing. And of course there's that age old um, phrase of, I don't know why the dog bit me. It was wagging its tail. <laughs> so, you know, like you said, Marissa, yeah, totally. yeah, these behaviors don't occur in a vacuum. They're part of a larger context of what is the dog doing? How are they feeling? What does their body look like? Um, so yeah. And, and it's, I definitely think that there are some cases where it's like, well, you know it when you see it, because we can describe mm -hmm. these things and lacking the proper context, it can be really hard to guess what they mean. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. that's an excellent point. So I know that one of the first things I'm asked as a trainer by a lot of my aggression clients is what is the timeline? So how long do you think we need to work on this? How long do we need to be doing it? When can we stop? And this is a really, really tough question because, yeah, yeah. there are so many factors involved um, that contribute to the prognosis or, you know, what the ultimate behavior is going to look like or when we might reach that goal. So I want to dive into some of those factors and kind of pick them apart and discuss them so that we can get a better understanding of what fixed might even mean when we're talking about aggression. Um, so the first thing that I usually look at um, is, can the trigger be identified? So um, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later in the episode, but basically that just means, do we know what's causing the aggression? So how specific can we get? Is it men or is it men with beards or is it men with beards that walk with a limp? Um, is it children or is it children in a specific context? Um, is it a noise that happens at a certain time? Is it a movement? How specific can we be with what exactly is causing the aggressive response? Um, and that's, I think, a really big factor because if we can't identify the trigger, if we can't narrow it down enough, it's going to be really hard to be able to um, work with it in training, predict when it happens and be able to recreate it so that we can help teach the dog a different response. Um, and then kind of going along with that is how severe is the re aggressive response? So is the dog really, really worried or are they just kind of worried? Um, is there a learned history? So have they had a lot of practice with responding to the trigger in this way and being sort of um, emotionally reinforced for neutralizing this threat? Or is it a relatively new behavior? And I know, uh, Marissa, you mentioned earlier you know, when we were talking before we started recording about puppies, like a lot mm -hmm. of owners who have puppies that respond with aggression don't really even think of it as aggression because it's like, oh, it's the puppy kind of like figuring things out or learning what they're what they're afraid of or whatever. And um, while aggression in puppies isn't normal necessarily in a lot of contexts, there's also not that learned history. The puppy doesn't have, you know, months or years even of practicing this behavior. So those things can all kind of influence um, the the prognosis and, and what we're looking at in terms of what the final behavior could potentially be. What do you guys think? Anything to add to that category? Yeah, I would love to. I, I just love the example because I really help, think it helps most of my clients understand what I'm talking about, where it's it's totally normal if you're eating at a restaurant um, and your waiter comes and tries to take away your plate before you're done with your last couple <laughs> bites of chocolate cake 
to put your hand out and say, oh, no, 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 not, I'm not, I'm not done. I, this happens to me all the time with fries. Where it's like, no, no, I actually, I was going to eat all of those. Oh my gosh. <laughs> no way. Fries. Are there fries left? Then I'm not done yet. Yeah. 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 Um, and that's totally normal. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes our dogs do a similar thing where, you know, we, they move away or even growl a little bit when we're trying to take something out of their mouths. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's pretty yeah. normal and not necessarily a big red flag for me. But if I was in a restaurant and I stabbed my waiter with a steak knife when he tried to take <laughs> away my chocolate cake, <laughs> that would not be normal or acceptable. And if your dog does, you know, there the are still c- people who would understand, though. <laughs> right. Yeah, I would argue. I would argue. Uh, <laughs> you would hope I would. Especially if it's chips yeah. and salsa. Like, but you it. would hope that I would at least give him fair warning. Um, before I did that. And I think we expect Mm -hmm. the same and hope the same from our dogs. So, you know, as Ursa said, you know, how severe is the response and what is the trigger? Um, I think that's really, really important because again, it's normal to see, you know, dogs snarking at each other with inappropriate play or refusing to share at times. It's just whether or not they're giving fair Mm -hmm. warning and how quickly they're escalating to a much more serious response. And something that I didn't mention that you just sort of um, <clears throat> reminded me of is are, what are the warning signs? So dogs mm-hmm. that display aggressive behavior that go from zero to 60 with no warning, the behavior is a lot harder to modify mm-hmm. than if we get those early warning signs of the whale eye, the growling, the tooth display, et cetera. Um, so that's another another factor in the prognosis as well. Like, does the dog give us a heads up that it's coming? Yeah. So, and how's and how great. strong is that yeah. trigger? I had a case, I think, last summer where um, I just saw in the intake form that the dog had bitten a child um, and I started the call and, you know, we're going through the behavioral history. And it turns out that a child had fallen off of a bunk bed onto this dog while this dog was sleeping. Ooh. And, oh, you know, wow. they were really concerned that the dog was Scary, being aggressive towards children. And, you know, when I kind of heard the whole story, I was like, well, it's still not great. I don't like that the dog bit there, but it's also relatively reasonable that the dog didn't growl or give a whole lot of time and warning first yeah, because the dog yeah. was so startled and it was such a strong trigger for that dog. Um, so, you know, it, we, we just always have to ask because, yes, it was a bite to a child and I think it was actually a bite to the face, um, which we really don't like to see. But it was such a, you know, it you know, you've got to give the dog a little bit more leeway. Extenuating circumstance. Yeah. Cause it was such a weird thing that just happened to him. You know, I would have been startled too. Yeah. And one of those, when you're talking about bites too, I think it's really important to talk about what level the Mm -hmm. bite is, right? So did that dog just break skin and it was just a nick or abrasion and maybe there's a little bit of bruising or did that dog do multiple punctures? Um, You know, you guys can look at the Ian Dunbar bite scale. Like what is that dog's bite inhibition? I think that's really important to, to look at as well. And the context in the situation was the child's face near the dog's face when the dog woke up startled and bit the child in the face, right? Or was it a situation where a dog specifically stopped and then lunged up towards someone's face to try to get their neck or whatnot, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it is really specific to the context there. Yeah, again, Um, it never happens in a vacuum. Totally. And speaking of 
context, another thing that we're looking for is whether or not the environment can be managed. So speaking of kids with uh, dogs, um, and I'm sure Kayla and Ursa can uh, you know, chime in about this given their experience in sheltering. Just because a dog bites someone or a child or another dog, it doesn't mean that like automatically that dog will not be placed up for adoption in the shelter environment. Depends on the criteria, all of that. But, um, you know, some dogs can live really successful in a home without kids because the environment can be really managed. They don't, they, they don't have to, they, they might run into um, kids on the street, but maybe they live in an environment where that happens like once a week. And in a situation like that, then we might not see those threat displays happen more often than we would if that dog um, lived in a home where let's say grandkids came over three times a week. Like that is a way harder environment to manage than a home that completely doesn't have kids and we're only running into kids maybe once a week. I mean, that's very much the environment that I live in. Um, my stepkids are older, um, but when Sully sees kids, it's pretty much like once a week in our environment. Um, and I usually steer clear and they say, can I pet your dog? And I said, nope, he's in training and we keep mm -hmm. moving because he doesn't really want to pay attention to them. So, um, I think how much you can you can manage your environment plays a huge role into whether or not this is quote unquote fixed or modified to your heart's content. Yeah. One thing that I see a lot of here in Denver is people who live in apartments with interior entrances. So those high rise apartments with, you know, three, four, five more floors and all of the um, entrances are in an interior hallway where they have to go into the main building and then they go down the hallway and they get to their door. And my aggression clients, uh, dogs that are either like aggressive towards people or other dogs who live in those situations always really, really struggle because it's like, there is no way for them to mm -hmm. walk their dog out for a potty break without yeah. exposure to the triggers. And usually it's more exposure than the dog is ready for. Um, and so those cases where the environment literally cannot be managed, like I have a few clients where they can get like a grass patch for the balcony or, you know, we can set up some sort of... Um, you know, scenario where they don't have to go outside as much. And then, you know, most of my clients are already conditioned to do the dance of like peek around the corner and make sure no people are coming or like go out at four in the morning or whatever. But those are, those are management challenges because there's yeah. just virtually yeah. no way to get the dog around seeing those triggers constantly. Yeah. And Ursa, this is just a selfish question. Um, when you're working with those types of clients, because I'm I'm thinking of a very specific case, a reactive dog client in Denver that I worked with that had the same exact setup. Do you specifically focus on like all the strategies you just talked about, right? But do you then also focus on, you know, doing setups away from the environment and then just increasing the hell out of mental stimulation inside the apartment? Because a lot of times these are younger dogs or adolescent dogs or, or whatnot, and they're needing they're needing that activity. And in an urban environment, it is really hard to get, get into a place where that animal is going to be successful without going over threshold. So I'm curious, like what you offer folks. Well, um, it depends on if the dog is what the trigger is. So if it's 
people, um, but the dog can be friendly with other dogs, then we'll kind of brainstorm mm-hmm. like, well, how can we get your dog exercise and interaction with other dogs um, without triggering their concern for people mm-hmm. or triggering as little as possible? Um, and then, of course, vice versa, if it's, you know, humans um, or if it's the problem is dogs and not people. So, it, you know, I hate to say this. I know you're going to hate me for saying this. It depends. <laughs> um it really, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm clienting you right now. It really depends on um, what the owner is able to do. I usually try to brainstorm with them. Yeah. So here are mm-hmm. your dog's needs. Here are some ways that I suggest we can meet them. What are you able to do? What's feasible for you? So like, do mm-hmm. you have a family member with a yard where you, you and your dog can go to their yard once a day and play fetch or play with a flirt pole or, um, is there are you is there a time of day in your neighborhood where the traffic is lower where you can take your dog out for a walk or can you play training games at home do you have the space to do nose work um you know do you, can your dog go to daycare i mean we have dogs um at at the training center who um you know, are, are shy with people or who may be working on meeting people and being comfortable that can be comfortable with us that can come to daycare because they love other dogs. So it really depends Mm -hmm. on, you know, what the dog is worried about. And if we can create an environment that, um, we can meet the dog's needs without triggering them. I even have clients who have dogs that are shy with people or worried about people, but can go to the dog park. Because at the dog park, like, nobody really messes with them. Like, I think, mm-hmm. you know, especially mm-hmm. the better dog parks like the Cherry Creek one and, you know, the bigger ones, people just go to, like, be there and have let their dogs run around. And they're not there to, like, try to force themselves on somebody else's dog. And so I have clients with dogs that they, even though they're worried about people, they can go to the dog park and be totally fine because they have enough space that it's not a concern. They're never pushed over a threshold. They're never on leash. They're never cornered. They're never in a hallway with three feet of space between them and the person. Um, So, yeah, it's really just a matter of like brainstorming with the guardian about what can your dog handle and how can we meet what are their needs? How can we meet them and what works for you, you know, with your schedule, with your resources, et cetera. So um, but it's. I love how you broke that down for other trainers that are listening. Right. I think that that that's such a great way to ask, like, uh, you know, phrase those three questions and ask that to um, the pet parent. It's great. So one of the other things that we're going to be looking at as far as, you know, whether or not we can really give a good timeline and make predictions about the outcome of an aggression case is whether or not the actual behavior modification is being carried out effectively. Um, And that's going to vary from case to case. But, you know, are we managing to keep the dog under threshold? If the dog's body is being flooded with cortisol from an aggressive response multiple times a day or every day, we're not going to make very much progress. Um, Is the exposure being managed positively? So, again, when we are exposing the dog to the trigger, which is going to be part of the treatment plan, are we doing this in a positive way and going at the dog's pace? Are we getting enough trials in? Um, I know this is something that we struggle with sometimes with very specific types of aggression. Um, You know, as an example, I know I've struggled. Um, My dog, Barley, is normally very confident in most situations, but does startle at the sound that city buses make when they stop and then open the doors. That like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
sound. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he doesn't behave aggressively, but say he did, um, it would be a hard for me to control that. You know, I could avoid bus routes, but when I do want to expose him to it, it would be hard for me to get the number of reps in that I would really want. Um, so, you know, are we able to get that significant number of trials in? Are we using proper timing of our reinforcer? Are we using the proper reinforcer for the dog? Um, so, you know, you know, timing is everything. If we're not getting a high enough rate of reinforcement, um, which is, you know, the number of trials uh, and how fast we're training, and we're not using a good enough reinforcer, we're unlikely to see great progress. Um, and all of that is going to lead up to whether or not we're actually getting the conditioned emotional response that we want. Um, so sometimes what we see is we're using food to interrupt a behavior, but that dog is not actually feeling better over time and the behavior is not improving over time. And that is always a sign that we need to go back to our training plan and try to figure out what we're doing um, wrong and what could be helped um, in the training plan. Because again, if we're not seeing progress, we're not seeing a change in behavior, we're not really using reinforcers and we need to reassess our training plan. Again, keeping in mind that sometimes progress is going to be really slow and we do need to appreciate baby steps. Yeah, I was going to add, um, you know, this brings up a really valid um, point, which a lot of people don't understand, which is that when we're working with aggression, we're dealing with, even though people are focused on the behavior, right, the growling, barking, snapping, biting, whatever, um, what we're targeting is the underlying emotion that's driving that behavior, so the reason the dog is behaving that way is because they feel a certain way about something. So, um, you know, this is one reason why um, a training focus doesn't usually get the job done. So, you know, I've heard a lot of people say like, oh, well, you know, my my last trainer or I read or my sister's trainer told me or whatever, just have the dog sit, like just have the dog sit when a person walks by or have them look at me, make them look at me so that they can't look at the, the trigger. And generally what I see is with those training based approaches where it's like, we're just going to teach the dog to do X, Y, Z in the presence of the trigger. It's not enough because the dog's still worried. The dog is still worried about the trigger and just having them do something else alone isn't going to take away that worry. It might on the surface solve the problem of like, well, yes, of course it's incompatible. If the dog is sitting and looking at you, they can't also be lunging at a dog going by or lunging at a stranger. But what's gonna happen when the dog can't sit anymore? Like if, they, if the trigger's too close and they get worried and they jump up or if they don't respond to the cue or, you know, whatever, when that behavior falls apart, that underlying emotion of concern is still going to be there. And if we haven't changed that, then we haven't actually done any improvement and we haven't gone, gotten any, made any progress on, um, you know, changing that behavior. So when we change the, emo the emotion, the behavior follows. And I think that's a really important distinction to make, um, that that's what we're looking for really is that conditioned emotional response where the dog doesn't feel bad or feel worried or feel threatened about the trigger anymore. And then the behavior is going to follow. When I'm really feeling like my training is plateauing with a client um, or even with, you know, my own dog or a foster dog, um, you know, bring in other people and get help because even when you do have a really solid plan, sometimes you're just missing something of, you know, not recognizing baby steps of progress. Sometimes you do need to think about taking a step back um, and breaking it into smaller pieces, getting more trials and, uh, 
you know, some, and, and there are, there are all sorts of different protocols that can be really, really helpful. And I think sometimes people get really married to one or the other. Um, and just being able to pull them out and mix and match can be really, really helpful. You know, I'm working with a foster dog right now where I've been doing a lot of treat and retreat. And I keep getting people asking if I'm following a formal cat procedure instead, or, you know, I know other people are really married to bat and, you know, if, and when you're getting stuck, um, you know, experimenting with some of these different procedures can be really, really helpful. Um, especially if you're someone who tends to use the same one over and over. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, and this is, this is, I'm saying this out loud to remind everyone, but I'm really reminding myself is that (laughs) when all else fails, you're probably lumping steps. Like you're probably pushing too hard, um, pushing the animal either, um, over thresholds or asking for too much in that particular context. And I think it's not only is it a skill to, um, you know, when to mark and reward or how to hold the leash and all, and all these things. It's also, you need the skill of reading canine body language to know when you are lumping, going over thresholds, asking too much, right? Because the dog will communicate in some capacity. And these are all just, you know, some of the factors that go into determining a prognosis, but there are so many other ones, you know, like it's just so many moving parts, um, like like that example. Um, but some other things to consider are, are the dog's health, you know, are there physiological factors that are contributing Um one example of where a physiological factor actually might be helping is uh, my Border Collie Zip is reactive to um, large, loud vehicles. So like UPS trucks, buses, motorcycles that are really loud, that sort of thing. And um, she's a little bit older now. She's 11 and she her hearing isn't as good. And so she's actually become less reactive. I mean, I've worked with her a little bit. She's my dog, so obviously she doesn't get the training she needs because I'm a dog trainer. So, But um, her lack of hearing has, has decreased the <laughs> incidence of reactivity. But I know many cases where it's the opposite, where poor hearing or poor vision can cause anxiety because the dog gets kind of an incomplete picture of what's going on around them, and it makes them more um, sensitive. Uh, so are there physiological factors that are contributing? Is the, does the dog have unmanaged pain? Um, what is the living situation? You know, again, like we talked about the apartment, you know, where they have to walk past other dogs or, um, how many people in the family are working with the dog and are they all being consistent? But even if all of these factors are carried out, ideally, is there a point in time that we can consider the dog cured of the aggression. So even all things being um, equal, all things being ideal, let's say, you know, all those things that we discussed are being carried out. Can we say, okay, the dog's cured of this aggression. And I would say for some dogs, (laughs) not many, but for some dogs, I have seen behavior modification change the response to the trigger so thoroughly that the dog no longer responds with aggression in a normal setting. So I think that doesn't include if the dog is experiencing pain, like extreme situations where the dog is in pain or truly scared. Um, But like I have an example with my other dog, Nico, my Husky mix. Um, When I first adopted him, he was about 10 years old 
And the first time I tried to trim his nails, it, it was like he turned into the Tasmanian devil. And he didn't bite me, but there was a lot of snarling and snapping and screaming and flailing and just very dramatic um, display. And so I spent several months just doing really slow, really methodical behavior modification and desensitization and counter conditioning. And in the 12 years since that I have had him, he has never done that again. Um, so I can trim his nails, no problem. We can do all of them, all feet, all nails at once with one or two treats during and then one treat at the end. Um, he's never even looked at me cross-eyed since then. So, um, you know, there's one example of we had an aggressive behavior, an aggressive response to handling. Um, I did some really intensive behavior modification and then the behavior hasn't been triggered again. And, you know, in my mind, in a, from a practical sense, it's fixed because it hasn't come up. But I also have to consider I've never pushed him to where it's painful. Um, I can't remember. I mean, I'm sure I've probably quicked a nail here and there, um, but no extreme pain. I'm not like sitting on top of him and holding him down. I'm not squeezing his paws. I'm not like, you know, dramatically quicking his, his uh, nails or anything like that. So is it just that I haven't found the point that triggers aggression again? Do you guys see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So, Absolutely. yeah. So what do you guys think? Do you have some examples like that or? Yeah, I think one thing that comes to mind, which I think we covered, but I just want to make sure, yes, we did cover it, um, is, you know, how long the animal's been rehearsing this behavior. Mm -hmm. So what is the learned history? So when Ursa was asking Kayla and I before we started recording whether or not we had specific cases where we felt like the aggressive behavior is quote-unquote fixed, I really couldn't think of anything with the exception of like possibly a puppy that is, has learned that when you reach towards the collar and move the puppy in space using the collar, um, as a lot of, a lot of pet parents do, um, I had one case where the puppy started growling and fortunately that pet parent and I were working together already and she just sort of mentioned it in passing and I was like, Oh, okay, well we need to take that a little bit more seriously than, than you might consider and let's work on, um, you know, a desensitization and counter conditioning protocol, um, so that we're, we don't create, we don't continue to create a negative association to being reached or touched or whatnot. Um, but you know, we, she, she did a really, really great job. She was a great client and we were able to modify that and we didn't see that, but there was also, I think what's really important about what Ursa is saying, there's also some education and consideration for what the dog needs in that moment. So she learned different ways to engage with the dog so that she's not pulling on the collar all the time, right? Mm -hmm. She doesn't default to that behavior and set the dog up for failure. Um, so again, we didn't, we didn't see it. And, and I mean, I could follow up today and find out whether or not they truly have ever experienced it again. Right. Yeah. Um, because behavior is fluid and changing all the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I really couldn't think of anything, any case that I was like, you know, <laughs> check, <laughs> I don't, I don't feel comfortable saying anything is fixed. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think you make a really good so, point. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I think you make a really good point because sometimes 
you know, I'll have clients who will come to me with like, oh, well, you know, my dog gets aggressive with me when I, you know, pick him up and hold him upside down and pull on his ears or whatever. It's, it's sort of like, but your expectations for what your dog should tolerate are not reasonable. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, yeah. like that is a big part of it too. Like is, is what you're expecting the dog to tolerate without responding aggressively reasonable or is it a little yeah. much? <laughs> so, you know, again, like we would never expect any human to like want to greet everyone they meet with a hug and a kiss, right? So, yeah, that would be weird. You know, some, yeah, when people say like, well, my dog doesn't, you know, <laughs> it gets, gets a little sketchy when people come up and like grab him and mush his face. It's like, well, that's not a reasonable expectation for your dog to tolerate. So, you know, I think that's a piece of it, too, yeah. is what are we what is the trigger <laughs> really something that we should reasonably expect the dog to be OK with? Or is it asking for a whole lot? Like, are we, you know, are we asking for more than we would expect of of a reasonable human? <laughs> so, yeah, Caleb, that reminds me of the story that you were telling us on one of the podcast episodes about. I was just going to tell the story. The dog. <laughs> yeah, tell the story again because it's really, really good. And it, well, I mean, it's like borderline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like I was like annoyed at your it's friend. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I was just thinking about this where I was having a conversation with some friends where they had they were were just kind of talking about dog stuff as as you do when you hang out with me, and they had. <laughs> their dog kind of pulled up. Um, they're sitting crisscross applesauce and the dog is kind of pulled up so that her back is to their chest and her butt is kind of cradled in their, in their lap. Um, so she's kind of belly up and the dog's eyes are kind of bugged out. Her ears are kind of back and her tail is tucked. And, you know, we're talking about things and they were like, well, yeah, but I just don't think it's ever acceptable for a dog to growl at a child, you know, and we're kind of talking about that concept. And it was just one of those times where I was just like, oh, like a reminder of like the things that I know that other people don't necessarily know because the conversation we ended up having that I just couldn't believe they weren't seeing themselves. So I was like, your dog is currently giving you signs that she doesn't like what you're doing, that you're blatantly ignoring. Um, and I didn't think she was necessarily being incredibly subtle about it. Um you know, the dog's tail was fully tucked, which I think most of us know means a dog is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, you know, it's not like this dog didn't have a tail to look at. Um, right. <laughs> and I think that's that's like a really important thing um, to think about is, OK, well, how do you want the dog to tell you that you're that she's uncomfortable? And in this case, I would argue I would much rather have a dog that growls at me. Um, if I am incapable of seeing these other warning signs, either because I'm not looking or because I don't know or because, you know, whatever it is, you know, again, if this dog didn't have a tail, it would be much harder to see the tucked tail. I would rather have the dog growl before the dog goes for a bite. And this is, you know, one of the arguments we often use for why we would prefer to avoid punishing a growl, um, because we don't want the dog to stop growling and just escalate up to biting the next time the dog has really freaked out, because we're not changing that underlying emotional response. Um, so is that the story that we were, mm -hmm. you were thinking, Marissa? Because that was the one I had in mind. Yeah. <laughs> it was absolutely the story. Yeah, I just love the question. I'm like, well, then what is... What's appropriate? What is Yeah, how, how yeah. is your dog and allowed to say no, thank you, I don't like this, because the dog had tried to move away, um, and they continued holding it, and then the dog just kind of sat there tense with her tail tucked. Um, 
And if yeah. a child think- ran up to that dog in that moment and tried to give her a big smooch, I personally would have looked at that and said, yeah. Yeah, of course mm-hmm. it did. Um, that yeah, doesn't mean it's okay. Right. And mm-hmm. we're not giving the dog a bunch of excuses here. But, um, you know, what are we expecting of the dog? And how are we listening to those earlier warning signs? And are we respecting them? Yeah, it's all, all about yeah. expectations. And God, that's that's such a great way to put it. What is What is the acceptable way? Because people hear the dog growling or they see a tooth display and they go, oh my gosh, red flags, the dog can't do that. And it's like, well, what are they supposed to do? Like, how yeah. are they supposed to tell us? Um, and I personally am always grateful for like any signs the dog gives, like up to and including snapping, you know, <laughs> like, thanks for not taking my hand <laughs> off instead of. <laughs> um, and I actually, I have a story and I think we've talked about it before. And I, there's a blog post we can link to about the time that my German Shepherd bit my son. Um, and she, he, he yanked on her hair. Like he was having a really nice interaction, but he was young. He was maybe two and he grabbed a handful of her hair and I'm sure it hurt. And she bit him on the arm and left. I mean, the bite was so inhibited that he laughed. Like she did no damage. She didn't even leave any marks. Um, it was her way of saying like, ow, stop it. That hurt. And, you Mm -hmm. know, I can't fault her for that. Like, he hurt her and it was an accident. It wasn't anyone's fault, but, um, and I was right there. It's just, you know, toddlers do impulsive things and he grabbed her hair. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I'm grateful that she used, you know, no force to tell him she was startled by it. And, um, I'm grateful that she used no force to tell him like, Hey, stop that. Like that was, that hurt me. Um, and I, you know, it's just, that's such a poignant question. What is an acceptable way? What is an acceptable way for the dog to say, stop it, I'm worried, or I'm, I'm scared, or that hurts, or that's uncomfortable? Um, and people need to ask themselves, like, what if you're taking all these, these communication tools away from the dog, how are they supposed to say it? Yeah, exactly. So. And, and yeah, like, we can't expect the dogs to just tolerate everything. Um, I don't think that's fair, and I will argue until I'm blue in the face about that. Um, Same, I'll die on that hill. Mm-hmm. I will yeah. die on that hill. <laughs> yeah, same. Because I'm not going to talk. <laughs> like, um, I don't know. I don't take that no. either. And I just, I don't, ex- I don't think it's fair to hold dogs to like a holier, uh, more enlightened position than us. Um, yeah, that no. doesn't seem fair. If I can't yeah, live up to like, the standard, I'm not going to expect w- my dog to. No. Oh, I love that, Kayla. And I was just going to say that, like, in terms of asking the question, like, what is acceptable? I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of conversations with Scott about this. Like, let's say I bring something up to him and it's too much for him to handle. I will then say, I need to communicate something to you. It's not, it's not you know, the, the happiest of topics. What is the best way for me to deliver that information? And I think we have to offer that to our canine companions. Like they have to, they have to be able to communicate when they don't like things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, like we should also be doing this for, for one another mm-hmm. as well. And, and I can, and lots of times we don't. And so I can see how it like bleeds into our canines where we're like, Ooh, I don't like that response. That's, that's threatening. I don't like it. And I'm just going to punish it or get rid of it or expect you never to do it again mm-hmm. and say it's quote unquote unacceptable. Not realistic. Well, it's easy to get defensive. Not realistic. It's so easy to get defensive. 
about, um, I mean, you know, like you said, yes. with people, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, you know, it's really easy to get defensive when we have to hear something we don't want to hear. Um, and I think with dogs, yeah. uh, because we idealize our relationships with our dogs and, you know, we have this sort of idea that like they're supposed to represent unconditional love and constant companionship yep. and it's, and it's only supposed to be that. And then, you know, if our dogs do something that we don't approve of, especially when it's directed towards us, it's so easy to take it personally. And as a reflection, Mm -hmm. that ideal or that relationship has failed in some way. Um, And so we make so much more out of it than just my dog was threatened or worried or uncomfortable and they were telling me, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So that's, this is a whole podcast (laughs) episode. (laughs) It really is. All of our stuff wrapped up in, you know, why our dogs do the things that they do and not, and how we and respond. how we project yeah. our <laughs> all of our shit, all of our shit. <laughs> oh, is this a G rated? I just cursed. We've <laughs> sworn a couple of times in this episode already, okay, so okay. I guess we're we're explicit now. Uh, this is not for kids. Okay, go ahead. Um, I I do have a couple, you know, just going back to the original question. um, I think I do have a couple cases where I would say, yeah, you know, I I feel pretty good about saying that this is fixed. Um, You know, and when when Ursa first asked this question, I didn't have many that sprung to mind. And part of that's because of a lot of the ways that I've worked in the last, you know, in my time of being a dog trainer, um, I spent a lot of time in shelters where I don't know what happens to that dog after it was, um, you know, (laughs) released to the wild of suburbia (laughs) in someone's home. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. The only times we know was when it wasn't fixed and the dog ended up coming back, but we don't know about all the times where it may have been. Um, and then I also, a lot of my remote clients, we work, um, pretty one-off sort of thing. So I don't necessarily know. I do send follow-up emails, but I don't always hear back. Um, and I, do feel like I hear, you know, I I do get some positive feedback, but I don't feel as comfortable signing off on those because I wasn't there and I haven't seen it myself. Um, But I have several clients. Um, One that comes to mind was an old English sheepdog that displayed a lot of aggressive behaviors on leash towards bikes and uh, skateboards and people sometimes and dogs. Uh, He had a lot of triggers, but it was always just on leash. And it was actually primarily when they were leaving. Um, He was fine being approached, but when people passed by um, without interacting with him, he would get um, very barky, lungy and had snapped, jumped up, muzzle punched um, several times. So, you know, I think we would call this reactivity, but reactivity is a form of aggression. Um, Mm -hmm. and this dog, we, and he was, he was a tough case. I worked with his owner for a really long time. There were a lot of difficult things. She had some health conditions that meant she couldn't drive. Um, so it was hard to get him out anywhere. Um, he lived in an apartment building. Um, the one kind of like what Ursa was talking about where, um, you know, we were often running into dogs before we had even made it to the elevator (laughs) to get out for a training session. Um, Mm-hmm. But we were able to to work with it. Um, and he, you know, I'm still in contact with this owner several years later. Um, and he's still really, really good with all of his triggers now. So, you know, it is possible. I can also think of a couple resource guarding cases um, where it was a combination of behavior modification and expectation resetting. You know, um, 
the owners are not necessarily able to pull a ballistic out of their dog's throat um, <laughs> without eliciting an aggressive response, but they no longer have the expectation of being able to do that. We've taught the dog a good drop it for the times where you might want to do that. Um, you know, I know I've wrestled my dog to the ground and pulled things out of his mouth um, because I'm able to, and they're not necessarily able to do that. So, you know, technically, is it fixed? Maybe not, but they're able to go through their life. You know, they used to be having multiple aggressive incidents per week with this dog, and now they have none through a combination of behavior modification and owner education. So mm -hmm. I would call that cured. I think there's some weird, you know, I think Dr. Friedman would call it cultural fog around the word cured. I think when I hear the word cured, I think, okay, I swallowed a pill and all the symptoms are gone, period, end of story. And I mean, I think like many medical issues, almost all behavior issues are never really truly, truly cured if we're going to look at it through that yeah. definition. But are we able to go through life without eliciting that behavior um, relatively mm -hmm. easily? I would say that's also an important part of it. I would call that cured for this sense. Yeah. I, I have to, I want to ask you, Kayla, like how long, it sounds like that client, I'm just making an assumption, was really dedicated and you're still talking to her years later. I mean, I think that that, that client compliance, even though I don't love that word, but like that, that client commitment and dedication and to changing expectations and to managing the environment and to modifying the situation and in it for the long haul. We're not talking about like two weeks, folks. We're talking about months, even a year, right? I feel like those are the ones that reach this. I'm not even going to say fixed or cured, like, cause I, this, this modifiable reaction that is more suitable and less stressful for both the human and the canine. <laughs> that, that's what I'm going to call it. Right. Um, Right. I mean, so when you think back to your clients and you think back to those cases where you feel like it was it, you, you've achieved really good results. Those people are yeah. really dedicated. In I would experience. say especially with reactivity in general. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think with resource guarding, really I do feel like I've had several one hour resource guarding cases where we're able to get pretty far um, with just a single one hour consult. But resource guarding especially when it's just around food and mostly directed towards humans, I would say is the most easily modifiable and easily controllable of our yeah, aggression. That can be true. And I Generally. was going to say, I think Not like always. What, most, what most people are looking for when they ask about fixing the behavior is when can I switch from needing to be on top of my dog all the time and managing the behavior and guiding and prompting my dog to trusting that the dog will make that decision on their own, right? Would you guys agree with that? I feel like that's what my clients are asking. Mm -hmm. When can I not have to yeah. do it for them? When can, when can I trust that the dog will make the right decision without me prompting? Marissa, were you going to say something? I was going to say that's such an interesting top. I mean, I, I would agree with you. And I, I go back and forth with this because there have been times and I talked to one of my good trainer friends about this and she's experienced this in her private practice as well, where you manage it so well, you've done so much modification, you've got years even 
months even of things going really well, you drop your guard and then something really negative happens. And so it's not like I want to scare anyone, (laughs) Um, but it happened to me just last week. I mean, Sully and Dakota have been, um, their relationship is really, really great. And I, I literally said, Oh, that's so great. You're sharing that ball, Sully. That is really surprising. I I was like, Oh, I should pick that up. Didn't pick it up. Two seconds later, there was an argument. And I was, I was commenting on the good choices, choices he was making and they have such a good relationship. And I dropped my guard for a moment. And so I just want to bring in that perspective too, which, which again, makes this question really controversial and like complex because when you drop your guard and you have some, some positive experiences, something, something can happen. I don't know. Well, and that maybe I'm being negative. No, 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 no. I think that leads (laughs) us really into the next point that we wanted to make, which is that even though, you know, I think we can all think of examples where we, considered that the aggression was functionally resolved, right? Where, you know, like in the Mm -hmm. day-to-day life, it's almost never or maybe never a problem. Um, Most cases are not so cut and dry. And that the um, aggressive behavior is really sensitive to the intensity and the topography of the exposure to the trigger. Um, Because it's a normal Mm -hmm. response to a threat, a dog can resort to aggressive behavior if they go from feeling okay to feeling not okay. And when that happens can be really unpredictable. Um, And so, you know, like we were talking about earlier with the conditioned emotional response, the level of comfort that we can get the dog to with respect to the trigger is kind of a barometer for how fixed we can consider the problem. And that's a really complex task because, um, we can't always generalize the trigger. Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about what that means. Um, so how the trigger... I just want everyone to know that Ursa did air quotes around the word fixed. <laughs> fixed. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's a good note. Footnote, air quotes. <laughs> we can see each other doing it, but our listeners... I, like, I, just, I like the term functionally resolved quotes. a lot. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of like what we were talking about, where the majority of the time it's not a problem. Like, it might still be a a problem. And I almost mm -hmm. think of it like, oh, God, and you guys, I'm sure, are going to know what I mean because you've been in sheltering. But, like, a lot of the ways that we used to do, and I know a lot of shelters still do, behavior evaluations is I'm going to push the dog until I trigger something. So... I'm going to find out what this dog's threshold is and then this the dog gets labeled aggressive, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I you mm-hmm. know, it's like, well, we're going to pinch their toes or we're going to grab their scruff or we're going to steal their food or whatever until we get a response. And I feel like that was the um, sort of the focus of behavior evals as we used to know them. I used air quotes again, behavior evals as they were, mm-hmm. when they, you know, when they were popularized, that was sort of the point of it is like, we're going to see how far we can push this dog. And then when you get that aggressive response, you go, Oh, the dog's aggressive. <laughs> and so functional resolution of an aggressive behavior. I think part of that means we're not intentionally, like we're not putting the dog in that situation where, we know they're going to be triggered. Um, 
you know? So it's, again, it comes back to management and conditioned emotional response and generalization, which is, you know, what I, what I want to talk about next, because that's a huge part of it is how specific is the trigger? So, um, an example that I thought of was the mail carrier, right? This is a really widespread phenomenon. Dogs are aggressive to the mail carrier when they come up to deliver the mail. If you're in a situation where the carrier has to come up to your house, like onto your porch or put it through the slot or whatever. Um, and it's so specific. The context is so specific and predictable. It happens six days a week. It looks the same um, every time. Uh, you know, it's relatively straightforward. Um, most mail deliveries look the same. Like you don't get a lot of mail carriers that are like wearing crazy hats or dancing or on a tricycle or, you know, you name it, like whatever, right? <laughs> um, so the topography, the way the trigger... <laughs> The way the trigger looks and behaves is very standard. Um, And in addition to that, it's generally very manageable um, in terms of exposure. So most people have a place in their house where they can put their dog where they can't see the mail being delivered, right? Whether that's a, a bathroom or a bedroom or the kitchen or the backyard or whatever, there's a place the dog can go where they can't watch the mail being delivered. So they can't practice the behavior, the aggressive behavior without um, intervention, like the, the owner being there to work on the behavior modification. So that kind of trigger is so much easier to work with that very specific, very contextual, very consistent trigger. Um, it's very easy to generalize because it looks and behaves the same way every single time. So eventually you can teach the dog that when you see the person, in the blue uniform approaching the door, that means bacon. Yay. Party time. And that's a pretty simple, straightforward behavior modification, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like my resource guarding example, where if, you know, the main time or the only time that your dog is behaving aggressively is when another dog approaches him while he's eating. And, you know, we can control when the dog eats and we can control where the dog eats. It starts getting, and I know this is about where the other dog is. Yeah. And I know this is about what we're about going to pivot to, but, um, you know, and that's, so Barley has consistent, um, he will consistently, uh, posture at other dogs around his food. And that's always been a thing as long as I've had him. Um, and I've always been a single dog home, so it's never really been a concern. Um, Mm -hmm. but, and I know, again, we're about to pivot into this example, but I brought home a foster dog for work. Um, so one of our prospect working dogs at working dogs for conservation, um, intact one and a half year old black lab mix. And Barley was not just worried about him around the food. Barley was getting in between this dog and toys, the cupboards where food is stored, the cupboard where human food is stored, um, <laughs> resting places, tight spaces, blah, 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 blah. Every single thing in the apartment, Barley was getting in between this dog and any potential perceived resource and lifting his lips at this dog. Um, and I luckily was in a situation where I just said, okay, this isn't going to work. And I brought the dog back, um, to work and grabbed a different dog to foster for the weekend and had zero issues at all. Um, unfortunately, if that was my boyfriend's dog or, you know, like I know Marissa, you've done a lot of hard work to integrate Dakota and Sully. I wouldn't have had that option Mm -hmm. and it would have been a much, much more difficult case. But for Barley with most dogs, all I have to do is control mealtimes. Yeah. And I can't tell you exactly yeah, why he was sense. so concerned 
about curly. That one dog. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was I was floored. Um, Wait, did I, you say was he is he unneutered? Did I make that up? Yeah, he's intact. Yeah, I think, he's intact. Okay. I think that might be it. It's just you know I. I need to try with another intact male or seven to see if there's an actual pattern before I really want to say that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I mean, as Kayla mentioned, we were going to pivot to, to provide you another example where other triggers can be far more complex as you can imagine. So for example, if you have a dog who displays aggressive behavior towards children, consider all the situations in which a dog might encounter a child and what that child is actually doing. So there are some kids that look and sound very uh, mistake. I don't want to say that children look a certain way. Hold on. So there are a lot of ways that children interact with their environment that can look and sound very different. So um, some kids can be loud. Some kids can be quiet. Some kids can move quickly. They might crawl. They might scream. They might cry. I mean, depending on their age, they they could have a variety of behavior responses, um, you know, sparkly hats, shoes that light up, like wheeling around on bikes. There's a, there's a <laughs> lot of different ways. Those freaky wheelie shoes. <laughs> yes, those are. So weird. You're walking and then now you're rolling. I mean, that is so scary for a dog. <laughs> Freaks me totally. out. So, I mean, so if you want to quote unquote, right, socialize or desensitize a dog to a child, it's not just a child and you're done. It's a child in all these different contexts. And this concept is called generalization. And it's one of the major challenges in behavior modification is because you you need to do the setups and and the the training scenarios in the variety of contexts so that your dog understands like, oh, all kids are safe or um, I need to recall in no matter what location I am in. Right. So um, Mm -hmm. again, those are really high expectations, but this is this can really make a behavior modification plan more challenging for folks. Yeah, absolutely. And if you don't do a great job of generalizing your triggers, or really if you don't do a perfect job, um, <laughs> the dog is still likely to display aggressive behaviors to some versions of that trigger. Um, and this can be really, really emotionally tough for all of us. So there are going to be cases where the trainer, guardian, both of you together have done a really good job of modifying the dog's emotional response to something. And it looks like the aggression has been mostly fixed. Um, but then something weird or out of context comes along and all of a sudden your aggressive behavior resurfaces. Um, again, this is super frustrating. So, you know, to go back to the kids example, um, you might do a great job of desensitizing your dog to being capable of walking past the playground. Um, and even while kids are on bikes or rolly shoes and when there are groups and when they're different ages. But, um, you know, there, there are other versions of kids. You know, it, you still could end up with a group of 15 children wearing butterfly wings running towards <laughs> your dog to tackle him and kiss him on the head. Does that mean you didn't do a great job with your your protocol, your training? No, of course not. You did a great job. There are just always going to be flavors of triggers that you can't necessarily generalize. Flavors of triggers. That is... I love that. <laughs> Life is always going to throw you um, a weird flavor, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and the same thing can and happen so, even with resource guarding, which we've been using as the example of the easily modifiable one. You know, you, 
Sure. You could give your dog a particularly amazing treat and he could have a tummy, tummy ache and be a little bit sore from your jog yesterday. And now all of a sudden you've got a response that you thought you had figured out how to avoid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to point out is that I, I really do think that the idea that aggression can be cured is based on an old fashioned model of behavior change that relies a lot on suppression. So punishment-based training, where really, you know, Mm -hmm. again, kind of like we were talking about earlier, we're only looking at the behavior and has it stopped? We're not looking at what's driving the behavior and have we changed the motivation? So I really do think that just asking the question, can it be fixed? We're framing it or we have traditionally framed it in the wrong way. Um, We're asking the wrong question. Um, and so I think that's something that's really important to point out. And so I really think the question should be, what's the best that we can achieve, um, with each particular individual dog, what is the best that we can achieve? Um, and that obviously takes into account all of the things that we've mentioned here today. And in my opinion, Mm -hmm. it's that, um, you know, we're going to carefully manage the situation in the beginning we're going to over time be able to take the training wheels off. And then our goal should be to teach the dog that they have other options that they can resort to besides aggression when they feel threatened. And to me, that's the goal. Um, it's not the, is the aggression fixed, but it is, does the dog have the coping skills and have they had the experience and the reinforcement, um, to be able to choose other things to be able to check themselves out of a situation, to be able to use those other cues to say that they're uncomfortable. Um, did we give the dog those tools? And if the answer is yes, then it's much, much less likely to be a problem, not just with the trigger that we started with, but with other triggers that we might not predict. So if the dog has those tools in their toolkit where they can say, oh, you know what? I'm feeling uncomfortable. I can check in with my person. I can go lay down. I can back away. I can fill in the blank, whatever we want to teach them. If they learn how to do that, then any trigger, any situation that comes along where the dog feels threatened is not going to be as big a deal. Um, and so really, mm-hmm. is aggression can aggression be cured, fails to take into, the, into account all the variations and the fact that dogs are complex emotional beings that um, feel the same things that we feel, but lack the language to be able to express that. And so they use their behavior to express what they're feeling. So I really do think, can can we cure aggression is really asking the wrong question. What do you guys think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it also makes the dog's response wrong. Like it's a jet, like if mm-hmm. you need to be fixed, like like then you are wrong completely. Right. So that's why like coaching or even some psychotherapists, they don't ever suggest that you are broken. And then now you have to come in order to learn a new coping strategy. You are whole as you are, and you're engaging the way that you are. And we might need to teach you additional coping strategies, whether you're a dog or human to be successful in life. So asking the question, is it fixed pretty much implies that the dog is wrong which is we're broken or that yeah. aggression is not a normal response, which it is. It's a totally yeah. normal response. Mm-hmm. And especially when you consider that dogs are living in a world that they don't totally understand. Our rules don't make sense to them from a biological instinctual standpoint. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. 
Kayla, anything you wanted to add? I, I, I think just to kind of summarize, you know, it, the best case scenario is going to depend for each case that you're looking at as far as how many triggers there are, how severe the dog's response is, how consistent the dog's response is, how controllable those triggers are, um, and how well that behavior modification plan is carried out. And then there are going to be some things that we just maybe can never know. Um, you know, Marissa and I just wrapped up a case study with a dog that, you know, basically came out of the womb funky. Um, <laughs> and, the, you know, this owner has done everything right. She's worked with a lot of great trainers. Um, I count myself lucky to be one of them. And, you know, the best that we can ever hope for a dog that has always been extremely high stress and had really hair triggers to a lot of complicated triggers that are difficult to control is different from a dog who, you know, he was stepped on once, so now he gets a little bit nervous when your boots get too close to his paws, and we're just going to work on that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it depends <laughs> in summary. Um, but I do think, you it know, depends. really focusing on <laughs> that combination of changing expectations and the environment to set the dog up for success and then teaching the dog alternative behaviors rather than just focusing on removing the aggressive component from a complete picture that otherwise stays exactly the same. Yeah. And I would say like treating just the behavior without considering the underlying emotion and the contributing factors is like treating your cough when what's really going on is you have pneumonia, you know, it, you have to take the whole picture into account. You have to understand what's driving the, the symptom, which is in this case is the behavior. Um, and, yeah. you know, again, always keeping in mind that dogs are complex emotional beings. I think that it's easy to forget that it's easy, especially from a training paradigm to think of it as input output, you know, well, I'm following the rules of positive reinforcement. I'm following the rules of classical conditioning. Um, but I'm not getting the output that I expected. Well, it's because dogs are animals. They're living creatures. Were you going to say something, Kayla? No. Okay. Just agreeing. <laughs> so our answer, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> I hear Dean Donaldson. I feel right like now. we could have our whole we, we should have just have a Twitter um a Twitter account where all we do is tweet every, you know, thirty six hours or so. It depends. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> it depends and be nice to your dog. <laughs> <laughs> and yourself, because it is hard to live with a dog. Is. Yeah, is no kidding. Displaying some of these unwanted behaviors. So we hear yeah, you. I guess actually there's one thing I do want to throw in there where um, I think sometimes I know I've talked to clients who have felt triggered themselves when I say that aggression is a normal response and a natural response for their dogs when, um, you know, an aggressive behavior has gotten really severe, especially really suddenly. I was on the phone with an, a college classmate not too long ago whose dog went from, as far as we can tell, having no issues at all around his food at a year and a half old to a year and a half and three days old to uh, putting a level three bite on this guy's stepdad. Um, wow. You know, through a, a shoe <laughs> uh, or a sock. I don't remember Ooh. which. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I do think sometimes it's important to be compassionate with ourselves and remember that, yes, aggression is normal and natural. That does not mean that we are saying you need to accept this sort of behavior. And, you know, in this case with this friend that I was on the phone with, I didn't actually feel like pointing out that 
aggression is natural was going to be helpful for this guy and his dog, you know, emotionally, um, as far as like figuring out how to actually deal with this problem, because you know what? No, that was not an appropriate response from that dog. That escalation is not normal. There's something going on here that we still haven't figured out. Um, and you know, maybe we'll get there. Um, But just because aggression in general is part of a normal, natural behavioral repertoire for an animal does not mean that the specific thing that you're seeing needs to be acceptable or even is necessarily normal because sometimes there's medical stuff going on. And that's my strong suspicion with this dog is that there's just something that uh, level of escalation is just setting off a lot of red flags for me. So I just wanted to throw that out there. I think it's important to emphasize Yeah, normalizing aggression doesn't mean that we should minimize the amount of stress that it causes people or minimize how they feel about it. Um, But, you know, I I guess my thinking and, you know, with a lot of my clients explaining well, aggression is normal is we as people as, you know, being first person like in our own brains can understand the effect that it has on us or can understand why we respond the way that we respond And so it's important for us to remember that dogs have their reasons too. They respond, you know, the way they feel is normal to respond. But yeah, that in no way should minimize, you know, obviously the distress that it causes and the, and the concern and the stress on the, the guardians and the people in that dog's life for sure. That's a great point. So, yeah. So be nice to your dog, be nice to yourselves. We're all just doing the best we can, right? Mm, (laughs) Yes. Yes. So. Well, uh, listeners, we'd like to know what you guys think. Do you have a dog whose aggressive behavior has been fixed, in your opinion? Um, Or do you have a situation where you feel like you're always going to be dealing with a certain behavior? Um, We'd love for you to reach out to us with your stories or questions at hello at canineconvos.com. We'd really like to hear from you on this one. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Ursa Acri, co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training. We're based in Denver, Colorado. And normally you can find us at 601 Bryant Street at our training center. We're recording this during the stay-at-home orders, so we're not there right now, but we are online at patreon.com slash training, where you can check out all of the online videos and classes that we're offering right now. And I'm Marissa Martino of Pause and Reward, located in Boulder, Colorado. And you can find me online at pauseandreward.com. And I'm Kayla Fratt of journeydogtraining.com. You guys can find me at journeydogtraining.com. My dog and I are on Instagram. Just look at pretty pictures of him in the mountains. Um, And I'm also doing Instagram. (laughs) It's real cute. Um, You guys can see his preposterous tongue. That's his main attraction. <laughs> and um, I also want to give a shout out to um, I've my YouTube channel um, was dead for quite a while, um, but I have a very behaviorally challenging foster dog right now that I'm doing pretty frequently frequent updates on. So you guys can find Journey Dog Training on YouTube as well. And there's a big backlog of other stuff from back when I was prolific on YouTube as well. Before we go, we want to make sure that you subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. You can find episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com. You can also contact us at hello at canineconvos.com. That's canine all spelled out. We'd love to hear from you. 